Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The First Amendment to the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That amendment lists some of Americans' basic freedoms. It's significant that the men who wrote the Bill of Rights included a free press and free speech as some of the nation's most important rights. The founders themselves may have even cursed the press in the late 1700s, but they understood its watchdog role. The press is still criticized by today's leaders, including the current president of the United States, and sometimes not held in high esteem by the public. But freedom of the press is what separates the U.S. from many other countries, including some that are democracies. It is Sunshine Week across the country, a time when we bring attention to transparency in government and that freedom of the press and freedom of the speech. Joining us is Donald Gillian, who is president of the Pennsylvania Freedom of Information Coalition. Mr. Gillian, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Scott. All right, so let me uh, tell our listeners out there, if they would like to exercise their free free speech rights, they could do that by calling 1-800-729-7532, or they could send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Don, let's talk about, uh, first of all, Sunshine Week. What is it? Well, Sunshine Week has has traditionally been a week that, that newspapers and media organizations generally uh, focus on the importance of transparency in government. Um, the bottom line is that, that in most all cases, when people know the details of what their government is doing and how government does it better, um, when government action takes place behind closed doors, um, among close friends, without any scrutiny from the press or public, um, usually bad things result. Um, graft, uh, taxpayer dollars being either misappropriated or uh, walked off with, um, sometimes just bad ideas. Um, the, the having local governments, state governments, national governments' uh, actions open and to scrutiny from the people who put the elected representatives into office in the first place is, is the bedrock of, of the concept of Sunshine Week. All right, so I'm going to a couple of definitions right up front here. So we talked about uh, Sunshine Week. What about uh, the Pennsylvania Freedom of Information Coalition? And you're just part of a uh, national organization. But uh, tell me about uh, the coalition, the Freedom of Information Coalition. Sure. The Freedom of Information Coalition is a little bit different than, than a lot of the other organizations and, and, and companies that you'll see associated with Sunshine Week because the Freedom of Information Coalition focuses primarily on the access of regular people to government meetings and government documents. Um, The board is comprised of uh, a bunch of media people, um, but we've also had uh, non-media people on the board, including representatives from the the State Librarians Association, uh, a number of different companies, and, and the focus really isn't on media access. The focus is on everyone's access. And, and there's a, a, a wide misconception that media has some sort of special right to information. They don't. The, the media's right to access to government meetings and government documents is the same right, legally, as anyone else's. 
Um, any resident can go in, watch a meeting. Any resident can go in, file a right to know request, and get public documents from the government to scrutinize how the government is, 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 is performing its job. Um, so the misconception is, is that media has some sort of special legal access. That's not the case. However, media tends in practice to have extra access because the media is, the reporters so often interact with, with government officials that, that government officials tend to treat them differently. And I saw it years ago before the, the state's right to know law was, was rewritten. Um, a reporter would go into an office and, and ask for documents. We could send uh, one of our office people in who the government officials didn't know, and that person would be denied access because the government officials weren't familiar with them and they were suspicious of why this person, this regular person, was asking for the information. The bottom line, however, was that by law, everyone has equal access to that information. So the Freedom of Information Coalition is really focused on trying to help regular people gain access to the documents and, and the meetings that they're, they're trying to scrutinize. scrutinize. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up as being a misconception because, I, I, I mean, I hear it so often uh, amongst I don't know, for lack of a better way to describe it, regular people or non-journalists, non-reporters, uh, that, uh, you know, this is this is a law or freedom of information is a tool that uh, is only used by the media. And when you say, no, that's not the case, that they're a, a little bit surprised that, you know, in a way, they seem like they're still kind of intimidated by government. Well, it, government, uh, <laughs> government is... is, is sometimes in the habit of, of intimidating people. Um, when, when a regular person who's not accustomed to asking questions of people in, in power, when a regular person walks into an office and asks to see a document, and the response is, well, who are you, and what's your interest in this document? What, wh why do you, what are you up to? Why, why do you want this? What are you, you going to do with this document? That interrogation process can be intimidating. Um, the reality is the law is on the, the, the citizen's side, and the citizen can say, listen, I've read the law, I've, I've looked at court rulings, you, know, you can ask those questions, but I don't have to answer them. By law, all I have to do is ask for this document. It's a public document, and you have five days to hand it over. Now, I know you've got it. Uh, you can wait the five days, or you can hand it to me now. But what I do with that document once I have it is none of your business. Um, but that, that initial interrogation can be really intimidating. Um, it's intimidating to reporters. I mean, we get it sometimes. Um, it's really intimidating for somebody who's not accustomed to it. And, you know, maybe it's a good time, and we'll talk about some of the things that you've brought up, but maybe it's a good time to describe the process, how, uh, you know, a regular citizen or a Pennsylvanian who does want access to a document, uh, wants something that uh, government has done, information what government has done, how do they go about it? Um, it? It's actually relatively easy once you get over the first conceptual hurdle. Most people want information. And so they'll go into a, a government officer, they'll send a letter, and they'll, they'll ask a question like, uh, why did you do X? Or how much did you spend on school bus transportation, let's say. And the way the law is written is citizens have access to meetings where decisions are made. And they have access to 
the documents of government, the documents that, that, that memorialize what the government has done, the decisions they've made and, and the results, the bills they've paid, um, and, a, and a host of other things. Um, so you have to think in terms of if you're asking for access to records, you have to think in terms of documents. Um, you have to ask for a copy of a document that is likely to have the information that will answer your question. And, and that seems like, you know, walking way around the mulberry bush to get where you, you need to go. But if you think of it in terms of proof, fundamentally the law gives citizens access to proof. You don't have to take the government officials' words for anything. Um, you know, we, we know that not all government officials fib or lie, but some tend to shade the truth and some, you know, have just will outright, outright lie to you. I don't think that's the majority, but it happens. You don't have to take any one person's word or answer for a question. Rather, the law is focused on giving you access to proof, giving you access to the documents, the, the paid bills, the, 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 the list of, of, of checks that have been written, um, the contracts that have been signed, so that you can look at the legal documents underpinning the government business, and you can see for yourself, because that's the legal proof. So once somebody starts thinking in terms of the documents, you know, looking for what will prove the, the answer to my question, then all you have to do is either go into the office or write a letter and say, I'm requesting under the right to know law uh, any document that, that, that shows, that would, represent, that would show me how much you spent on bus transportation last year. Um, and, and then there's a process the government has five days to respond. If it's a request that's going to take a bunch of time to get records together, they can ask for a 30-day extension. After 30 days, they're supposed to give it to you. And if they don't give you the, 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 the information, it's an implied denial. And at that point, the Office of Open Records in Harrisburg exists for you to appeal and say, hey, listen, you know, this, the documents I've requested – seem to be public documents. I've, I've, I've looked at the relevant part of the law. And nevertheless, my local school board or my local school district has not responded to my request. Um, can, can you tell the local, can you rule on this? Can you tell me whether or not these are public documents and whether or not the, the school district needs to give them to me? And the Open, open Records Office will do that. Um, it's a relatively simple process at the beginning. Um, we won't talk right now about the, the legal process if, if, if the school district fights the Office of Open Records. That can get sort of, sort of complicated, less so these days. Um, but, but if you think in terms of, of, of documents, then, then that's the first, the first hurdle. The rest of it is relatively simple. I, I really need to say up front, um, well, in the middle at this point, I guess, um, oftentimes, Sunshine Week can come off to people, both regular citizens and, and folks in government, as the media really beaten up on government, trying to imply that government's bad and always secretive. And, and honestly, that's not really the case, at least in Pennsylvania. Across the state, there are a lot of government employees, a lot of elected officials who are genuinely interested in transparency who are genuinely interested in good government, from the township supervisor level right straight up to, to the legislature. And, and more often than not, when you ask for a document, you get it. But there are still many instances across the state where public documents aren't released, um, and, and those are the exceptions, but they still require 
organizations like the Freedom of Information Coalition to help citizens fight those fights. We're going to talk about uh, Pennsylvania. You mentioned the Office of Open Records here in Pennsylvania, and that came about as a law. I was about to say a new law, but it's not new any longer, I guess, if you go. About a decade old. Yeah, yeah. about a decade old now. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It is Sunshine Week across the country, a time when we bring attention to transparency in government and that freedom of information that is out there and that all citizens, including the media, can take advantage of. Our guest is Donald Gillian, who is president of the Pennsylvania Freedom of Information Coalition. If you have a question or a comment, like to join in the conversation, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can go on WITF's Facebook. Facebook page to leave a question or a comment. Also on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. That is 1-800-729-7532. Don, a lot of people recognize your name from having worked at the Patriot News and Penn Live here in uh, central Pennsylvania. And uh, you moved to the western part of the state. You're now working with uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, right? That's correct, yes. What are you doing? I, I'm the digital news editor for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, so, so I'm, I'm working on the web end. You're on the cutting edge, then, of uh, new media, right? <laughs> I'm not I'm not so sure about that. Um, <laughs> I, to be honest, I think Penn Live, in terms of digital stuff, Penn Live really is the, the cutting edge in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not for all journalists. There are lots of, of people who still like their, their, their print copy, but uh, digitalized, uh, I really have brought... What I learned at Penn Live out here in Pittsburgh. All right, so let's talk about uh, Pennsylvania's right to know law. I said I called it new, but yes, it is about a decade old now. Uh, and that was a major sea change for Pennsylvania and obtaining information. How so? The, the biggest change was the change in presumption. That, that, that's the legal way of looking at it, I guess, or the legal way of, of talking about it. What it really means is that, that prior to the new law, the, the citizen had to prove to the government and or then later to the court legally that the, the document he was looking for, that he was seeking, was a public document. The new law shifts that, turns it around, and makes it the presumption that the documents, all documents, are public. And it's upon the government to prove that they're not public. And there's a long list of exemptions to the law. And, and we still have court cases 10 years later arguing over the interpretation of those exemptions. Um, so, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, it wasn't really opening the floodgates because there were, there were plenty of carve-outs. But that, that simple shift of moving the, the burden of proof from the citizen to the government really was, was a sea change in that, that, you know, unless the government could come up with a really good reason, they had to, they had to release the document. Hmm. You know, and I've had uh, Pennsylvania's, uh, you know, the, the leaders of the uh, uh, Right to Know office, uh, Eric Arneson, and his mm -hmm. predecessors on on the program before, and uh, you know they're they're very much open to getting information out to the public. But one thing that uh, have heard, and I think it's still an issue, a challenge, is that so many freedom of information requests or 
uh, you know, appeals to the Office of Open Records come from prison inmates here in Pennsylvania, which takes yep. up a lot of time. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And and a function of that, not to be snarky, but a function of that is prison inmates have a lot of time on their hands. Right. And the the, the core problem there, speaking from a citizen's perspective, is just because you've been incarcerated doesn't mean you lose all of your rights to citizenship. And particularly in instances where gaining access to documents might help you ultimately prove your innocence on appeal. That, that's the, the core argument of, of, of why you don't just carve out the, the prisoners and say, no, you know, prisoners no longer have, have access to the rights embodied in the, the, the rights no law. That's a, that's a real slippery slope. And, and you know, our, our, our judicial system isn't perfect and, and, you know, stripping those rights from a citizen, even though they happen to be, be behind bars for, you know, six months, six years, um, that's, that's constitutionally problematic. Uh, but there's no question that as an administrative reality, prison requests, particularly at the state level, just far outstrip all the rest of their requests, and it, and it takes up a lot of time. You know, I want to go back to kind of the original intent behind all of this, and that is, uh, you know, a citizenry that uh, is informed and has access to information, has access to government. You mentioned public meetings, and of course, Pennsylvania has a sunshine law when uh, any kind of government body is conducting business, and, uh, you know, there's personnel business, there's exemptions where they can do things behind closed doors, but for the most part, when they're voting on something, it must be out in the open. But, Don, you, you've covered many, many meetings over the years, some big, some small. Very often, there may be one or two people in the room. Why is it, why is it that, you know, okay, this, it's nice to talk about this, but how do we get people more involved, wanting to go to those meetings, wanting to get information from the government, wanting to learn more about what's going on? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go in an odd direction here, Scott, because, I mean, although your desire, and, and oftentimes it's been mine, to have more public interest and more public engagement at meetings, um, having sat through a lot of meetings, uh, I think most people have better things to do with their time. Uh, meetings are boring. Um, you know, there, there's one exciting meeting out of... 75. True. Um, and usually that exciting meeting is when lots of people show up. Um, but, but when there's a controversial the, issue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes it's after the action has already taken place. It's, right. It's after, you know, all of a sudden people realize, whoa, what's this? Um, really, and this is the way I think of, of, of government, media, and citizens. Government elected officials and reporters, the media, are really proxies for better people. Regular people have better things to, to do than, you know, administer the boring ins and outs of, of government function. And that's what they elect government officials to do, fundamentally. You know, go run the school. Pay attention to the boring details. Spend your time figuring out the budgets because I have a family to raise and a, and, a, and a job to go to, and I have other things to do 
I'm going to elect you as my proxy to go be a school board member. At the same time, the reporter who goes to the meetings is the, the, the people's proxy to pay attention and make sure they're doing a decent job. Go watch and report back to me so that no shenanigans are going on. So really, th- that's how our, our system works, and most of the time it works okay. Um, it begins to break down if you don't have reporters at meetings. Um, it begins to break down if uh, people don't read <laughs> the, the stories about the meetings. Um, if, if, and it really breaks down when people begin to distrust both the media and the government. Um, you know, in, in my experience, sorry, there's some noise here. In my experience, I, most people in government, and I'm talking predominantly local and, and, and even state government, really want to do a good job. Um, you know, they're people. Aptitudes vary. Um, levels of ambition vary. But they, they're there to try to do a good job, most of them. They're well-intentioned. And it's, it's the same with most of the people in the media. They're, they're, it's it's con- it's popular now to, to think about you know, vast conspiracies. Having worked in a lot of different newsrooms, uh, journalists aren't well enough organized to, to conspire to do much of anything. They have a tough time conspiring to get lunch together. Um, <laughs> That's true. So, you know, it's toning down the conspiracy theories and the distrust and realizing that, you know, humans are imperfect. You're going to get an imperfect government because it's run by humans. You're going to have an imperfect media because it's run by, by, by humans. And understanding that in most instances, they're, they're humans kind of like you, and engaging, and, and really these laws are for when the individual citizen decides to take an interest and say, all right, I want to see for myself. And you can go to the meeting and see for yourself. You, know what, you can request the records and see for yourself. You know, Don, what's kind of ironic about what you're saying, though, is uh, since the Trump had, uh, you know, the election and inauguration, uh, it seems though more people have become involved in, you know, there's been protests, there's been people who have questioned what's going on. So it seems as though just an observation that more people are becoming involved. We only have a few minutes left. I have an email here from a listener who wants to ask you, does this apply to police reports? I tried to get a copy of an assault on me and was told I had to go through a lawyer. Um, that, that's, it depends on, on what the simple answer is maybe, (laughs) um, what is a, what is public under the law is a police blotter. And that's the simple record sort of time in time out record of what the police have been doing. The catch there is if they keep a blotter, most all local police departments do and you have access to that. Um, you may get a little resistance if they aren't accustomed to, to showing it to people. But that's, that's a very simple in and out kind of this is where people were going. The state police, on the other hand, claim they don't keep a blotter. Um, I was actually involved in the precedent-setting case under the new law that ruled, no, the state police don't keep a blotter. The, the uh, minority opinion... Uh, it was from a judge who had been a policeman who said this record is exactly what a blotter, the definition of a blotter, but he was in the minority. So sometimes yes, sometimes no. If there were charges, 
then you have access to what's called the affidavit of probable cause, which is the preliminary narrative from the police justifying the charges. And that affidavit will be filed along with the charges at your local district magistrate's office. And the judiciary operates under a different system. The judiciary actually was far more open than the rest of the government as a matter of tradition. And you have access to the, the affidavit of probable cause um, if charges have been filed. If it's just an incident, incident where no charges are filed, the police showed up but walked away, you're probably not going to get a detailed uh, uh, account of, of that from the police because investigative records are not public. It is Sunshine Week across the country, and we've been talking with Donald Gillian, who's president of the Pennsylvania Freedom of Information Coalition. Don, we're going to put uh, some links to your website, which has an explanation of how people can go about, regular people can go about uh, obtaining information through freedom of information and what their rights are uh, on our website, WITF.org. Don, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. And I just say one last quick thing. Sure. Um, fundamentally, it's not about necessarily just about people getting access to documents or finding out, you know, juicy secrets or, or scandal. Paying attention, when government officials know that you're paying attention, they think twice before they do stupid things. So fundamentally, it's about good government. Transparency and paying attention is about making sure your elected officials think twice before they do something boneheaded. <laughs> now, there's my quote for the show, you know. <laughs> hey, thank you. You're welcome. Don, thank you very much for being with us today. I want to thank him for, the, and we're going to continue this conversation, or at least a, a related conversation, just a moment with WITS Multimedia News Director Tim Lambert. I want to mention that our next Smart Talk road trip takes us to the Railroad Museum of Pennsylvania in Strasburg, Next Thursday, March 23rd, we'd like you to come see the live broadcast, participate in the show, and see the museum. You can go to WITF.org to RSVP. We'd like to know how many people are coming, so we do encourage you to uh, RSVP by going to WITF.org. Uh, there are some nice pictures of trains there that kind of will tell you that uh, that's what we're talking about. Tim Lambert is with us right now for the next few minutes, and uh, Tim... I mentioned to Don Gillian uh, just a few minutes ago that uh, since Donald Trump was elected and we know that uh, the president has made some controversial remarks about the media, calling uh, the media the enemy of the people, talking about fake news, it has shined a lot of attention on the media and the job that we do or don't do. You know, we have to, you know, look at the criticism sometimes and think about it. But you have been involved. Actually, I have, too. But you've been more involved here in recent weeks, uh, you know, appearing in public, talking about the role of the media and maybe how that role has changed and what people should look for nowadays. You're actually going to be doing something this afternoon. And we want to talk about an event Monday at Elizabethtown College. Talk about the event you're involved in. Sure. Uh, well, I think after uh, the election, and a lot of scrutiny was placed on the role of journalism and, and the questions about how journalists do their job and whether they're biased or not. Uh, I think, you know, that led to a lot of internal discussions among media organizations, including here at WITF. And, and one of the things that we focused on was, you know, how do we help people 
um, learn about media literacy? How do we help people stay educated about what to look for in a story? How, a, how to judge a story is solid based on its sourcing, on its tone, on its language. And uh, also we've dis- we discussed talking about how to get out and connect with the community again. I think there's been this sort of disconnect uh, that media organizations have had that has grown over the years a little bit because of reductions in staff sizes, so reporters aren't out in the field as much, um, or I shouldn't say they're not out in the field as much, but there aren't as many reporters out in the field as much, uh, that um, that people uh, don't understand exactly what we do. Uh, so. Uh, I've been asked to do a lot of speaking engagements lately, and I decided to take organizations up on that just so I can get out and talk to people and talk about the role of public media, but also about the role of journalism. This past Monday, I was in Gettysburg, uh, spoke to the Rotary Club uh, about journalism. And what was interesting is I used to work in Gettysburg, so it gave me some time to kind of think back to maybe 15 years ago when I was there, how many reporters would be at, say, a school board meeting. And uh, I came up with about eight from two radio stations, three or four newspapers, if the television station showed up, uh, and now there might be two because of, of the loss of those radio stations, the, the cutbacks at newspapers. So that's a huge difference in how communities are being covered by media organizations. And and when I mentioned that, you could see sort of like this look on people's faces in the crowd, like, wow, that's a big difference. You know, you go from eight reporters shining a light on something to two, that's going to make a difference in, in coverage. It's going to make a difference in how things are done uh, behind the scenes with some of these uh, government organizations or nonprofits or whatever. Uh, so uh, that was the start of my mini tour of, of why journalism is relevant in the 21st century. And today, this afternoon, I'll be on uh, WHP with uh, Matt Briette of Commonwealth Partners. He's going to be guest hosting, and we're going to talk about journalism, media bias, and and uh, some other topics as well. Uh, talk about the event on Monday, though. This is uh, something that the WITF is very involved with at Elizabethtown College. Yeah, that's going to be with uh, LNP Media Group and the Pennsylvania News Media Association. It's a program called Trust, Transparency, and the News, and it's going to be from 7 to 8.30 p.m. in Gibble Auditorium at Elizabethtown College. And it's going to give people a chance to ask questions uh, of journalists, but also to uh, to listen to what we're up to and what we're doing. The first panel is going to be on transparency, and uh, Terry Henning is going to be the mod- moderator. She's the PNA president, and myself and Marie Cusick will be on the panel, as well as two LNP staff members, Tom Merce and uh, Paula Knudsen. So uh, it's going to be a chance to figure out how, you know, to hear how we do our jobs and, and what our focus is on, and to answer questions that the public might have. Just to... I don't know. We could have obviously do a whole show on this, and we have and will uh, continue to cover this. But, you know, one of the big questions that has arisen over the past uh, few months, maybe even longer than that, is about any kind of bias. You know, we we hear that question all the time. Uh, Someone hears a story that they don't agree with or they don't like the outcome of of what's done. What do you say when people say, well, the media is biased? They have their own point of view. Uh, well, it's always tough. I mean, you, you want to hear people out. I think a good example that I could give of, of a case here at WITF, it happened a few years ago when Tom Corbett was the governor and his administration uh, was in power. And we've done a lot of reporting on the natural gas industry. And uh, the, the, the Corbett administration wasn't very happy with our coverage. And, and they were saying that uh, our reporter, Marie Cusick, was biased. Uh, so we had conversations with the administration. I, I run a very transparent news organization. Uh, the, the WITF 
UITF is a very transport, transparent organization as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll hear out. If you have something legitimate, we'll, we'll take it into consideration. So after listening to this litany of complaints, we said, what's an example of a story that was biased? They couldn't provide one. So right there, there's absolutely no basis for their claims other than they just didn't like the coverage. So I, I think when it comes to bias in journalism, I think... Everybody is biased in some way. We all have different world. Ex- a, yeah, we have a, different world experiences. Yeah, right. You know, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. I grew up in a steel town that was dying. Uh, other people have grown up in you know New England or whatever. So I think you bring these biases to the table as you report, and that's that's a perspective that you're going to take your approach from. But when it comes to uh, bias in reporting, I think uh, journalists do their due diligence to remove themselves from the situation, focus on the facts, and uh, and and report the story as the facts lead them, you know, to where to where they go. Are there biased reporters? Probably. Just like there are bad lawyers or bad teachers or bad police officers or bad in anything, any walk of life. I mean, that was one of the things I did at the Gettysburg speech. I pointed at someone and said, what do you do? And it was an accountant. And, and I said, are you the best accountant in the world? No. Are there better ones? Yeah. Are there worse ones? Yeah. I mean, that's like in any profession. So you're always going to have some people who, who aren't going to be cut out to be journalists. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I prefer to see an example when people bring up bias in the media. Show me something you think is, is biased. And usually, you know, eight times out of ten, it'll turn out to be something that uh, just didn't fit in what their perspective of the story should be. Mm-hmm. Tim Lambert is WITF's Multimedia News Director. And, uh, yeah, we probably should address this on Smart Talk in the very near future. Interesting <laughs> topic. I mean, it is something that... Uh, it's important. The, it's important and it's something the public is talking about. And one of the things I would always say, too, is is that if supporters of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, if 10% of those supporters cared as much about the First Amendment and the right to uh, a free press, uh, we wouldn't have some of the problems that we have facing journalists today. So, uh, Tim is on with Matt Briette this afternoon on uh, WHP and also at Elizabethtown College as part of a panel on Monday night. Tim, thanks for being with us today. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Now, we haven't changed format right here in the middle of uh, the day on WITF Smart Talk. Theory holds early rock and roll was inspired by Greaser Rebellion. The denim and leather-clad rebellious bikers made famous by James Dean and Marlon Brando. Disenchanted post-war youth bored by suburban affluence and social conformity. Penn State history professor Richard Aquila says that was enge- that was engineered. The real roots of rock and roll were much more sanitized, an effort to bring music from then-segregated African-American communities into the bedrooms and cars of white America. Joining us is Richard Aquila, who is a, pres- a professor of history and American studies at Penn State Erie. Dr. Aquila, thank you for joining us today. Are you there? There you go. Yes, yes, I am. All right, there you go. If you have a question or a comment, you'd like to join in this conversation, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, you call yourself a rock historian rather than a rock critic. What's the difference? Well, from my perspective, the difference is I approach it as an historian, not as a music uh 
a critic. If I was approaching something, let's say from, from the perspective of a music critic, I would talk about how good the song is, how what the performer is like, and I would evaluate what are the good songs, what are bad songs. Whereas from an historical perspective, what I'm interested in is, is what does that particular song or that particular performer tell us about the times? Uh, it doesn't really matter in terms of quality as far as historically speaking. What's important is the historical and cultural significance of it. All right, so let's talk about that. Uh, your book, Let's Rock, How 1950s America Created Elvis and the Rock and Roll Craze, you counter that myth that I mentioned in the introduction that rock and roll grew out of teenage rebellion, uh, that you know Elvis loved his mother and joined the Army, Pat Boone was as satisfied as it come, yet these set the trends and sold the albums. Where did that rebellion in rock and roll come from? Where did that myth, as you call it, grow up from? Well, I think it, it's a pretty complicated story in some ways, Scott. It, it's not just a question of the music industry trying to sanitize it or trying to present a, a particular perspective. But within the music itself, there are these various tensions. There always are in any pop culture form. Uh, whether you're talking your your previous segment when you were talking about journalism, and the different tensions and the different perspectives and everything else, that's always in pop culture too. And what you have in early rock and roll music, and Elvis Presley is a perfect example of this. I mean, Elvis on one level was extremely rebellious in terms of what he was doing, his performance style and everything else. But on another level, Elvis Presley was really quite conservative in terms of his uh, attitudes toward his family, his attitudes toward religion, his attitudes toward the United States government and his role in even going in and getting drafted. I mean, so there are always these tensions there. That's why somebody like Elvis Presley becomes his popular icon because people basically could view someone like Elvis and they could, from their own perspective, they could see him as a rebellious figure or as a very conservative figure. Well, at the time, as you, uh, you know, as you pointed out, Elvis was considered a rebellious figure, mostly because of his movements and, you know, a lot of, uh, of the music that he did do uh, had uh, sounded very black. But, you know, when you talk about uh, the religious aspect of it, uh, you know, Elvis, I don't know how many uh, gospel albums he recorded, but I just can't picture John Lennon recording a gospel album. I mean, there's one of the big differences in the, in the time period, you know? Have a couple, a couple examples here of uh, some of what you're talking about. Um, Hound Dog is uh, an icon, an iconic Elvis uh, Presley tune. But it was originally, and many people may not realize this, was originally recorded by Willie Mae Big Mama Thornton in 1952. And let's give this a listen. That's Willie May, Big Mama Thornton, in uh, 1952, uh, his recording of Hound Dog. Of course, uh, that sold 500,000 copies, which is nothing to uh, sneeze at, but here's the Elvis version. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, crying all 
All right. Now, the Elvis version of that song sold 10 million copies. Why? What was the difference? Well, the difference is, and this says a lot about the historical background, too. The difference is Big Mama Thornton was recording on a very small label, a rhythm and blues label. Uh, It was being played only on radio stations promoting black rhythm and blues music. So it really doesn't get out to the general audience, whereas... Uh, years later, when Elvis does it, it's on. It, it comes out on a major label. It comes out, and it's going to be promoted on television, on radio. It reaches a much wider audience rather than just a smaller segment. And during that time period, the African American community comprised maybe six percent of the entire uh, audience. And when Elvis is getting it out there, he's reaching the entire audience in that sense. Uh, So economics comes into play as well. What's also interesting about that, Scott, is if you take a look at that song, that song, uh, a lot of people might not realize this, but that song was written not by a black rhythm and blues performer, but it was written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, two of the top uh, white pop composers during the 1950s who had a whole string of hits going all the way into the 1960s and later on a Broadway musical based on their music and everything else. And they represent how the music was coming together. I mean, you've got elements of white pop in what they're doing later on. You've got elements of black music in there. It's a real cultural mix. So, so there's no simple answer to that in terms of those two songs, but those are two very different songs. And in many cases, I'd even argue that Elvis Presley's uh, version of it isn't really a cover because Elvis is going to do it in a very different way than Big Mama Thornton is. And Elvis's lyrics aren't as clear, in fact, as when Big Mama Thornton is singing it and put off a very different uh, connotation in terms of the audiences is concerned. All right. A couple more examples here. Fats Domino, Ain't That a Shame. You made me cry when you said goodbye. Ain't that a shame? I have to tell you that uh, I'm tapping my foot right now as uh, as we're doing this. But Pat Boone, there may be a lot of people out there who didn't realize that Pat Boone did the same song. And here's his version. You made me cry when you said goodbye. Now, when that song was originally put out, it seemed to resonate more the Pat Boone version, even though in hindsight, as I'm sitting here, I mean, there's really not that the Pat Boone version is bad, but uh, there's a big difference between the two. Why did this this recording, the Pat Boone recording, resonate with listeners? Scott, let me interrupt one second and say something. You see, now, if I was coming at this one as far as being a music critic or just a fan of rock and roll, I, I would take a different position there than the way you just did. Okay. I would say from a, from a music fan perspective, Pat Boone's version is bad. Oh, uh, really? Fats, I was being Fats nice. Domino, I was Fats being nice. Domino, Fats Domino's version, like you said, you're tapping your foot and everything else, and as soon as Pat Boone starts crooning that song, I find myself just cringing in some ways. <laughs> so from a music perspective, 
there's a world of difference between those two songs. Now, from an historical perspective, both of those songs are extremely important because they tell you something about the times. And the Pat Boone, in fact, I, I interviewed uh, Pat Boone at one point and used some of the stuff in this book. And Pat Boone made the comment, he said, look, I'm not going to try to tell anybody that my versions of black rhythm and blues songs were better than the originals. He said they weren't. He said, they, uh, he said but you can't compare my version to Fats Domino's or Little Richard's. Compare me to people like Frank Sinatra or Vic Damone or other white pop singers. And he said, if you do that, he said, what you find is during that time period, I was helping to broaden the base of this music. I helped popularize rock and roll. And I think Boone's correct when he says that, because one of the arguments that he makes is initially Fats Domino or Little Richard could not get played on mainstream radio stations because of skin color. It tells you something about racism of the times and the segregation. Whereas Pat Boone comes out there, he's, he's singing these songs, and basically he's introducing the white audience to that type of a sound. And then within six months, seven months, the whole cover record phenomenon back in 1955, 1956 is gone because white teenagers want to go and they want to listen to the original, the Fat Domino, not the Pat Boone. And, you know, it makes me wonder, and I know you write about this and talk about it, so let's discuss a little bit more, okay. that music may have had a big impact on civil rights. For many white teenagers, this may have been the first time that they have heard, certainly heard black music, but maybe even came into contact with African-American culture overall, right? Exactly right. Uh, this was a time period in the 1950s where African Americans, because of skin color, were not going to be served in certain restaurants, were not going to be able to get any kind of other types of services at all because of skin color. At that very same moment, in places even down south, uh, where segregation was very strong in the 1950s, white teenagers were not just buying records by blacks, but they were going out to concerts. Uh, staying, dancing on the same dance floor sometimes as blacks because they were all listening to this music. Uh, so from that perspective, whether you're talking Chuck Berry or Fats Domino or any other African performer of those years, it does help to bring down the walls of segregation and racism. It doesn't happen overnight, obviously, but what's very important, I think, is far too many times, and I say this as an historian, we even in history textbooks, we take a look at things like Brown versus Board of Education or the Montgomery bus boycott, and we totally ignore the fact that in popular culture, the walls of segregation are coming down even before 1954 and 1955. There's a cultural mixing going on in the music, just like there was in sports with Jackie Robinson, which predates uh, Rosa Parks or, or uh, 
uh, Brown versus Board of Education. You know, another thing when you think about the number uh, the 1950s that comes to mind is some of those black and white films we've seen of uh, children in elementary school diving under their desk. You know, this is how they were going to protect themselves against the uh, attack of a nuclear weapon by the Soviet Union. You say that the whole culture of the United States during this time period was influenced by the Cold War and that the music plugs into the Cold War culture. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, and in fact, this goes back to something you you asked earlier, that what you have is clearly there are some people in the United States who attack rock and roll. They see it as something that's undermining the culture. Uh, For them, it was rebellious. It, uh, It tells you far more about the public mood in the 1950s than it does the music itself. Because in the book, Let's Rock, what I do is I try to show that the music in some ways is 100% American during those years. Unlike after 1964, where you have the British rock invasion and you have, it truly becomes more of a world music with performers from all these different countries, uh, particularly England in 1964, obviously. Back in the 1950s, rock and roll was almost 100% American. Anybody who was not American uh, was viewed as suspect as as being able to do this music, which was indigenous to the United States. Uh, What you find in that music is exactly the same thing that's going on in the rest of the culture. You see songs that are uh, patriotic. You see songs, I mean, even Ellis Presley. I mean, the idea of when he is drafted and, and goes into the Army in 1958, one of the comments that he makes is, I will do just what any other red-blooded American boy is going to do, and I'll go and, and dedicate my service to the country. Mm. I mean, it's a, a far cry from what you have by the late 1960s when you have protests against Vietnam and the draft and everything else. Uh, during the 1950s, the music, uh, religion, is extremely popular in the, 19, uh, in the 1950s because many people saw religion, specifically Christianity, as a counter to the godless communists. And many of these songs in the 1950s are going to pick up on various forms of, of religion, uh, you know, a very conservative in their approach. You I know, mean, what's ironic about that is, uh, you know, many of those uh, communist countries like the Soviet Union, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, before the fall of communism, uh, you know, they want to become more like America when it came when it comes to pop culture and uh, following American music. And then, of course, after 64 with the Beatles and all that, we're almost out of time. And uh, Dr. Kill, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. The book is Let's Rock, How 1950s America Created Elvis and rock and roll craze. Sounds interesting, and uh, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. And uh, anytime I can get a chance to play uh, some music on the air, you know, we all started as uh, disc jockeys here at radio. Uh, so, you know, that is uh, something that uh, when we get that opportunity, you know, see, we'll let you take advantage of that. But uh, <laughs> coming up on uh, coming up on Monday, Smart Talk, how the Republican health care plan would impact Pennsylvania. That's coming up on Monday's show.